You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 34. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I update you on my writing endeavors and share installments of my fresh new fiction with you. Before we move on to the story, though, there's something I need to tell you. This past Monday, I came back from my vacation in Michigan to discover that I was being laid off from my job, effective immediately. Over the last few days, I've been dealing with the usual fallout from an event like this. Filing for unemployment, contacting creditors, starting the job hunt, etc. It quickly became obvious that Montana was not going to offer me the sort of job opportunities that I would find engaging, stimulating, or profitable. So, after discussion with my partner Melanie, we've decided to move somewhere that my skills as a scientist will be in greater demand. We have a few different locations that look promising, but nothing has been decided yet. When I have more information on that front, I'll let you know. In the meantime, we have some expenses that can't be deferred or delayed, and when the time comes for us to move, we'll have even more of them. Unemployment insurance helps, but it only provides about half the income my old job did, and that was barely enough to live on as it was. So here's the ask. If you are a regular listener to this podcast... If you enjoy the stories I'm telling here, if they bring some happiness and enrichment to your life, then I'm asking you to help out me and Melanie by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, click the button that says become a patron, and enter a monthly pledge. If you pledge $3 a month, you'll get access to author commentaries and other behind-the-scenes info, as well as monthly bonus stories. If you pledge $10 a month, I'll make you part of my creative council, which I periodically consult with about decisions on my writing. And if you pledge $15 a month, you'll get free copies of every new ebook I release. So far, that includes the novel Making the Cut, the story collection Urban Legends, and the novella To Walk in Shadow. And more will be coming in the months ahead. Right now, there are about 1,500 of you listening to this podcast. If every one of you went to Patreon and made a pledge at the $3 a month level, Melanie and I wouldn't have to worry about how we're going to keep the lights on or pay for our moving expenses. There's no long-term commitment. You can cancel your pledge at any time. But if this show matters to you, if you want to help me keep bringing you great stories, then at least consider supporting us for the next few months, until Mel and I can find our feet again. And if you're already a supporter on Patreon, thank you. Because of you, we get to eat this month. And if you're pledging right now at the $3 level or less, maybe consider upping that pledge a little, just for a few months. Every little bit helps, and the bigger your pledge, the less of it gets eaten up by processing fees. But whatever you can afford, we are intensely grateful. Again, that's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The link will be in the show notes. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 5 of Things Unseen. Once again, this chapter was a little shorter than the average, and since I had some extra time this week, I'm bringing you the whole thing. If you haven't listened to the first few chapters of this story, you can find the beginning in Episode 24. The following recap will contain spoilers. When we last left our heroes, 
Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane was paying a visit to Baron Kapler, the head of House Kapler and the director of Kapler Pharmaceutical. Kapler's Pharmacorp has been active for years in the Telvari Rift Zone, where they grow nocturnus lilies and other plants with important alchemical and medicinal properties. Kate asked the Baron to help her get in touch with his son Ezekiel, who was apparently planning some kind of adventure with several of his noble friends. One of those friends was Mysteria Halloway, the missing heiress that Kate and her partner David have been ordered to find. Baron Kapler said he didn't know where Zeke and Misty are, but he did provide Kate with Zeke's contact information, including the private phone number he uses for house business. The Baron gave up one other clue as well. He's been facing some kind of pressure from the Vampire Crime Syndicate, whose leader, Malcolm Ardvalos, wants a piece of the action in the Telvari Rift Zone. Meanwhile, Kate's partner, David Silverleaf, went back to Hunter's Hollow, the dangerous sector of the street where the Lightbringers found a body that had been blown up by magic. Kate had previously performed an augury at the crime scene, but all information about the man's death had been erased by an occultation spell. Now, accompanied by the Lightbringers, Yancey Takahashi and Kelsey Stanton, David performed a summoning at the crime scene. He called together the animals who lived in and around the alley, asking them for any information they could provide about the wise one who had used his art upon the body. A few of the animals had seen the event, and one, a sparrow, recognized the old man who had cast the spell. It was the same wizard who lived in a shop in front of a fountain on the second level of the city. Though the bird could not describe the man in detail, his identity was obvious. The wizard Artax, the proprietor of the Spells for You magic shop. Things Unseen A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 5 Kelsey, Yancey, and Detective Silverleaf met up with Detective Katane for lunch. By mutual approbation, they chose a small pizza parlor on the second level, which sat on the edge of a plaza next to Halvard Tower. I don't believe it, Katane said. I know. Kelsey stared at her plate with little enthusiasm. She picked a pepperoni off her pizza and held it up to the light, looking at the little patterns of dark and pale spots. It came as a shock to me, too. No, Katane said firmly. I mean, I literally don't believe it. There's no way Artax is the killer. Yancey glanced uncertainly between Katane and Silverleaf. The elf looked serene, as usual. You, um, you seemed pretty sure he was there, though, she said to him. Silverleaf gave a slow nod. He was there. So, do you think he did it? Yancey asked. The elf turned those fey purple eyes on her, and the shorey woman shivered visibly. Not particularly, he said. Why not? Kelsey asked. I mean, yeah, I like the old fart well enough, but why cover up a murder if you weren't at least partly responsible for it? We don't know that he did cover up the murder. Katane said. We just know he was there. Somebody else could have come by later and done the occultation spell, and David's little friends just missed it. Come on, Lieutenant, Kelsey said. 
In your line of work, you must do ritual auguries, what, forty, fifty times a year? Katane nodded. That's a lot of real-world expertise. More than most master wizards get, probably. How many people in this city could do an occultation well enough to block you? And for that matter, how many people could use magic to make somebody explode like that? Making people explode with magic actually isn't very difficult, Silverleaf said. I've never seen it done in that particular way before, but that doesn't mean it's all that demanding, if you know how. Besides, you're missing the point, Katane said. Artax takes killing very seriously. He hates it. I saw him last year after he helped us take out that rogue sorcerer who was trying to destroy Lothanasi headquarters. That screwed with his head for months. He's not going to blow somebody up without a damn good reason. Kelsey took a bite of her pizza, chewed, and swallowed. So, what if he had a damned good reason? Like he had to do it to save the city or something? Katane bit her bottom lip and looked down at her plate. If he had to do it, she said softly, it would be clean and quick. They wouldn't go out like that, dried up, melted, and set on fire. That's not his style. They were all silent a long moment. Artax will need to be questioned. Silverleaf said at last, but it should come from someone he knows and trusts. No offense, agents, but if two Lightbringers show up at his door to interrogate him, you're not going to get what you're looking for. I can imagine that, yes, Yancey said. But in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? We have no other leads, unless Dr. Drowling manages to identify the body. Give Morgan a little more time. Katane urged. She should have the report back in the Prince and Dentals tonight. If John Doe's been reported missing, or if he's ever held a government job or filed for a security clearance, she should be able to get a positive ID. Did you run those ballistics she asked for? Yancey grimaced and nodded. Like she thought. Sternum shot out of his chest at about sixty meters a second. I sent her a copy of the results this morning. She took a swig of her drink and shook her head. Just horrible. Katane leaned in close. We'll talk to Artax tonight, I promise. Right now I just need to follow up with a few things on this other case. How's it going? Kelsey asked. Wish I could talk about it, Katane said. She paused, then amended. No, scratch that. If I did tell you, you'd probably laugh. Aha! Gotcha! David looked up from his paperwork with a curious expression. Look at this. Kate spun around the monitor on her desk so David could see it. After the war, House Kapler was given stewardship of the Telvari Protectorate. They had a Telvari princess who married into the line four generations back, so they were the only house who had any claim to it. It was supposed to be a ceremonial gesture, since everybody thought it was going to be a smoking hole for the next thousand years. But then came Project Lightpath. David said. Exactly. Kapler's little monument to the war suddenly turned into a biological gold mine. That's when they founded Kapler Pharmaceutical and started figuring out ways to make a profit off the plants and animals. And boy, did they ever. David raised an eyebrow. You do realize you're getting your research from a user-generated WorldNet encyclopedia. Kate spun the monitor back around, looked, and blushed. She settled back in her chair and crossed her arms. It's only a first pass, she said, a little defensively. And it ties in with what we already know, right? 
Malcolm Ardvalos is trying to get the rift zone opened up so he can get a piece of the action. And Baron Kapler got all twitchy when I asked if he was having vampire troubles. Hmm. David scratched at his chin. You're sure he was lying about not knowing where his son is? He definitely knows more than he was telling, Kate said. Young Lord Ezekiel's been up to something, and Kapler doesn't want it to get back to Count Halloway. Maybe he knew Misty was involved, and maybe he didn't, but he is aggressively covering his own ass. So what's your theory? David asked. Malcolm got his hands on Ezekiel and the others, and he's holding them hostage, so Kapler will do what he wants. Maybe, Kate said. Or maybe Malcolm threatened to do something nasty to Zeke, and Zeke's in hiding so the vamps can't get to him. And maybe Misty's with him. She held up the business card with Ezekiel's contact information. Either way, we've got a place to start looking. David smiled, a predatory expression that showed a lot of teeth. Phone and email records? Kate returned the expression. Ain't it fun being a cop? Call the wiretap court. I'll get started on the paperwork. Betcha we get a warrant in half an hour with the Count Holloway Platinum card. As it turned out, getting the warrant took closer to 15 minutes. The Imperial Intelligence Authorization was almost frighteningly efficient at cutting through red tape. Getting the telephone companies and WorldNet service providers to actually turn over the requested records was a bit more complicated. By 5 o'clock, they had only managed to garner promises that the records would be on their desks by 9 o'clock the following morning. There was nothing more to be done on the Halloway case for now, so Kate and David called it a night and went down to the morgue to check on Morgan. They found her up to her elbows in another corpse, while industrial music blasted from her portable sound system. "'Hello, darlings,' Morgan said. "'Come say hello to Giuseppe Verlomi, or as I call him, Joe.' She turned to the body, an overweight bald man who looked to be in his late fifties. "'Joe has learned a very important lesson about proper diet and exercise, haven't you, Joe?' She wiggled the man's head up and down in a nodding motion. Your heart doesn't work so well when it's plugged up with all that cholesterol, does it? She shook his head back and forth in a no gesture. Has anyone ever told you you can be a morbid bitch, Morgan? Kate asked. Morgan laughed, shucking off her gloves and tossing them in the biohazard bin. More of a moribund bitch, but the point is well taken, she said, as she went over to the sink and washed her hands. Still, his family paid for an autopsy because they thought he'd been poisoned. Turns out he just didn't listen to basic medical advice. I'm sorry, but if someone decides to commit suicide via fettuccine Alfredo, I have very little sympathy. I've seen too many people die young from things that were a lot harder to prevent. Kate pointed a finger at John Doe's meat locker. Like sudden systemic dehydration? Morgan's expression sobered quickly. For example, yes. She dried off her hands and went over to her office, gesturing for the detectives to follow. She woke up her computer and turned the monitor to face them. On the screen, Kate saw the image of a middle-aged man with salt-and-pepper hair and beard, along with a name, a reference number, and a set of fingerprints. We got a match on the prints we lifted from the dough, Morgan said. Kate came in for a closer look. Bernard Travers. How'd you find him? Pilot's license. Morgan said. He's registered with the Imperial Aviation Administration for everything from light flyers to bulk cargo tenders. There's some more personal data on the next page. Kate clicked the forward arrow on the document viewer. The photos and prints were replaced by lines of text. She scanned through them idly. 
Says here he was human. That doesn't fit the theory you told me yesterday. I know, Morgan said. Fortunately, his DNA is on file, so we can double-check it when we get the results back on the Riflip analysis. But I do have a theory about why the body didn't look human. Oh? Kate asked, only half listening. She was reading through the man's employment history. He'd had a long and varied career. He'd even served in the military for a time and been honorably discharged. Yes, Morgan said. Take a look at his last employer. Kate skimmed down through the page, then nearly fell out of her chair when she saw the company name at the end of the list. Oh, you are fucking kidding me! David was beside her in an instant. What? What is it? Mutely, Kate pointed at the final employment listing. Company name, Kapler Pharmaceutical. Location, Telvari Rift Protectorate. Position held, Shuttle Pilot. This, David said, cannot be a coincidence. My thoughts exactly, Morgan said, especially since Travers was just fired two weeks ago. Kate looked back at the record sheet. She frowned. You're right, but it doesn't say why. Nope, Morgan agreed. But whatever it was, it happened shortly after Ezekiel and his friends went off on their little adventure. David leaned in and peered at the listings. His service record looks exemplary. Why would he suddenly get himself fired for helping Lord Ezekiel? Good question, Kate said. Maybe Zeke had something on him. Or maybe Zeke got him fired for not helping him. She turned to Morgan. Pass this info on to Agent Takahashi. Janus isn't going to like it, but his John Doe just became part of our top priority case. Lovely, Morgan said. I'm sure he'll show up soon to tell you precisely what he thinks of the idea. Let him, Kate said. We need to go talk to Artax. Suddenly, I'm really interested in what he has to say. The Spells for You magic shop did not look like the sort of place where a respectable wizard would do business. The door had a set of jingle bells attached to it on a long piece of felt. Upon entering, the shopper was confronted with row upon row of trinkets, knickknacks, and doodads, most of them useless or possessing dubious magical properties. The cash register stood on a glass display counter in front of the left wall, below a sign that said, Always follow the directions. Let the buyer beware. The display case was filled with pendants, earrings, amulets, and crystals. While most of them were magical, the enchantments on them were minor, nothing you couldn't find at a major department store, though these were handcrafted and likely of better quality. A young man wearing jeans and a tight black t-shirt slouched in a chair behind the register, reading a book on magical theory. He sat up a little when the door jingled, but he didn't look up. "'Can I help you?' he asked, in a tone that said he hoped the answer was no. "'Hiya, Tunstall,' Kate said brightly. The kid looked up then, brushing his thick, dark hair out of his eyes. He grinned. "'Hey, Detective Katane.' He put the book aside and got to his feet, stretching in a way that showed off his abs. "'What's shaking?' "'The bad guys, if they know what's good for them, Kate said. Tunstall laughed. "'Cert. <laughs> what can I do for you, Red?' Kate sat up on the edge of the counter. Looking for your boss. Know where we can find him? I'm right behind you, Miss Katane, a sour voice said, and I'll thank you not to leave your ass prints on my display case. Kate hopped down and turned to the back of the shop. 
where a little old man stood with his arms crossed at the end of the aisle. He wore a blue terrycloth bathrobe and fuzzy slippers. Atop his thick white hair, he wore a cone-shaped hat covered with stars and moons, of the sort that most wizards hadn't worn in centuries. If ever. His snow-white beard fell to the middle of his chest, below a long, crooked nose and ice-blue eyes that stared at her in an expression of complete disapproval. He was the most ridiculous-looking spellcaster Kate had ever seen outside a cartoon. He was also, by far, the most dangerous. Kate bowed deeply to him in greeting. David, beside her, did likewise. "'Good evening, Artax,' Kate said. "'We're here to to ask me a few questions, I, I know,' Artax said, his thick Sathamoran brogue making the grumpy wizard act even more effective." I'd hardly have to be a wizard to know what it means when a pair of police detectives show up at my door. Good point, Kate admitted. Is there somewhere we can talk in private? Artax inclined his head toward the door at the back of the shop. You can join me in me flat upstairs. I've just put the kettle on. The door opened onto a warehouse that seemed far too large for the shop in front of it, with rows of long metal shelves stretching back three stories high. Artax took a left at the entrance and led them to a staircase, which went up four flights and ended at an ordinary-looking wooden door with a woven floor mat in front of it. The old man made a few gestures that temporarily lowered his defensive wards. Kate got a glimpse of the spell weave as it went down and was instantly impressed, and then opened the door and let them inside. The front room of the wizard's flat was small and intimate, set up for comfort rather than for show. A love seat and two armchairs faced each other around a thick, soft rug made from some animal that Kate couldn't identify. None of them matched, and all looked well-worn and comfortable enough to fall asleep on. A reading lamp stood on an end table beside the larger of the two armchairs. Several other lamps were hidden behind paper screens in the corners, filling the room with a warm, diffuse light. A beaded curtain separated the sitting room from the kitchen beyond. There were several potted plants all around the room as well. Some of them were Nocturna's lilies. Have a seat, Artax said, gesturing at the love seat. They did so. The old man vanished into the kitchen, then returned a minute later with a small folding table, which he set up in front of the detectives. He went into the kitchen again and returned with the tea service. It was a gorgeous blue and white porcelain set, probably Hanis in origin, and probably worth more than all of the furniture in the room put together. The teapot was covered by a tea cozy, shaped like a fat, smiling cat. So, Miss Catane, Master Silverleaf, Artax said as he put a little milk into their cups and then poured in the tea, how can I be of service to Metamore's finest? Kate took a sip of the tea, then closed her eyes, savoring the taste. She considered herself more of a coffee girl, but this was excellent stuff. We're investigating a death by magic, she said. Bernard Travers, a pilot, formerly employed by Kepler Pharmaceutical. He died in an alley in Hunter's Hollow two nights ago. The Lightbringers found him on their patrol the next morning. She gazed at the elder wizard over the rim of her teacup. Somewhere in between, you visited the body as well. Artax raised his eyebrows slightly. And how do you know that, pray tell? A little bird told me, said David. Kate glared at him. How long have you been waiting to use that line? Years, 
David said, looking pleased. The opportunity doesn't come up as often as you'd think. Much as I hate to interrupt the elven comedy hour, Artax said, rolling his eyes, my time really is quite valuable. What are you asking, detectives? We need to know what killed Travers, Kate said. And sometime before the Lightbringers found him, his body was augury-proofed. We need to know why. Artax took a long sip of his tea. For the first, I cannot tell ye, he said. Can't or won't, David asked. For the second, Artax said, ignoring him, because I cast an occultation spell on the body. A heavy silence fell over the room. Artax, Kate said slowly, are you saying you deliberately tampered with a crime scene? The corner of the old man's lip twitched. What I am saying, my dear, is that Bernard Travers was killed by a magical force so potent it makes your most elaborate spells look like mere cantrips. There are men and women in this city who will kill for power like that. Kate blinked. So he wasn't killed by a wizard? No, child, Artax said. Travers was touched by something else. The rift, Kate whispered. Artax leaned forward, his ice-blue eyes boring into her. Whatever it is, wherever it came from, it is unspeakably dangerous, and the last thing that you, I, or anyone in this city needs is for a power like that to become the object of an arcane scavenger hunt. There are thirty-seven High Master Wizards living in these parts. If even four or five of them start trying to capture this power for themselves, half the city will be in ashes within the week. Kate raised her chin fractionally. So you're going to take care of it? Just like that? This is the 21st century, Artax. We have laws and due process and... And none of that means a tinker's dam to these people, Artax snapped. In a lower tone of voice, he continued. Miss Katane, with all due respect to your authority, ye are far out of your league here. You've trusted me before to deal with situations beyond the capabilities of you and your men. Trust me now. Stay out of this. Kate exchanged a look with David. Then, sadly, she pulled out her Imperial Intelligence badge and showed it to Artax. I wish we could, she said, but Count Halloway himself has deputized us to look into this. His daughter went missing because of this mess. He wants her found and brought home. Artax took the badge and studied it, frowning. After a moment, he passed it back. You're in even greater danger than I thought, Miss Katane, if you're answering to a man like Holloway. In his own way, he's as great a conjurer as you or I, and the men and women under him are his reagents. Watch yourself, or you'll end up used and discarded with the rest of them. He set aside his teacup and rose. Kate and David rose with him. I'll do my best to help you find Lady Mysteria, he said. But I beg you, leave Travers alone. Let me deal with him. There are some powers man was not meant to wield, a reality we ignore at our peril. Artax held the door and gestured for them to leave. Kate leaned down to put her mouth by his ear, but she kept her eyes fixed forward. She couldn't look at him for what she had to say next. I'm choosing to trust you, she said quietly, for now. But if you endanger this city because you obstructed my investigation, 
then we're going to find out what kind of authority this badge really gives me. Miss Katane, Artax said, in a tone of mild reproof. Threats are beneath your dignity. She glanced at him out of the corner of her eye. It's not a threat, she said. She straightened and walked out. David murmured something to Artax in Elvish, and the old man responded in kind. Then he ushered them out of his shop and locked the doors behind them. That was less helpful than we'd hoped, David said. Kate made a disgusted sound. What is it with people? They get a little power, any kind of power, and they think it gives them the right to ignore the law. The elf gave her a sidelong glance. Do you think he's telling the truth? That Travers tapped into some kind of power he couldn't control? If he did, he's probably not the only one. How much you want to bet that's why Zeke Kapler went to the rift in the first place? It's possible, David agreed. People have gone to the rift before and come back changed. Not always for the better. Sounds like this time they hit the jackpot, Kate said. And to hear Artax tell it, every heavy hitter in the supernatural community is going to be after the prize. David opened the door of the police cruiser for Kate. She slid in and across to the far side, and David climbed in after her. So we keep going? We keep going, Kate said. Tomorrow we'll take a look at those phone and email records, see if we can trace out Zeke's adventure, where he went and who else went with him. If we find Zeke, either we'll find the girl or we'll find out where he last saw her. She sighed and rubbed at her eyes. I just hope the little twit hasn't gotten herself killed. Or anyone else, David said. The old man sat down wearily in his armchair. He'd exchanged the teacup for a snifter of brandy. He turned to the plant in the corner of the room. She won't stop, you know. The entity, projecting itself through the plant, regarded him silently. I asked her to choose between our friendship and her oath. There's no question which one she's going to uphold. You gave an oath as well, the entity said. I a bloody one know that, Artax snarled, and I'll hold to it by blood and fire. But you're gonna have to give her something soon or you're all done for. I cannot hold back the entire bleeding empire. We don't trust her, the entity said. She serves him. She serves the Majestrix and the people of this city, Artax said, a fact that Halloway will learn to his cost if he pushes her. The entity's voice turned speculative. She will not hand us over to him. Try her, Artax said. Damn it, you've got to give her something to work with. If you can trust me of all people, you can trust her. The entity considered that. We shall see, it said and left him. And that's the end of Chapter 5. What is the entity speaking to Artax? How do they know each other? And what will happen now that Artax has urged it to trust Catherine Katane? The mystery continues next week.
Normally, this is where I give you my weekly writing report. Back in episode 31, three weeks ago, I said I'd fill you in on my writing when I returned from my vacation. After I aired that episode, though, I decided that I needed to put my writing on the back burner for a few weeks and focus on the business side of Liminal Corvid Press. I've created a lot of content over the last year, but I wasn't putting in the time that I needed to move that content to market. Since my writing chain was broken anyway, it was the perfect time to focus on putting out new books. So that's what I've been working on. First, I put out the e-books of Urban Legends, the first Metamore City story collection, and Making the Cut, which has been waiting to see print for years. Then I put together the paperback version of Urban Legends, which went on sale the week between Christmas and New Year's. Since I finished that up, I've been working on the paperback version of Making the Cut, which is about half done at the time I'm writing this. I haven't gotten much done on it since the layoff. It turns out that shocking, stressful life events are sort of a killer for your creative flow. But I'm getting back to work on it now, and I plan to have the book finished by the end of the month. Incidentally, this is another place where your Patreon donations will really help, because I need to pay for things like registering the ISBN number and printing the proof copies before the book can go on sale. One other note about writing. Because of the sudden change in our family finances, I will not be attending that anthology workshop in February. Instead, I'll be taking the story I wrote for it, Missing Pieces, and releasing it as a bonus story for my Patreon patrons. Look for that story later this month on the Patreon page. I've been getting some great feedback lately, especially on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page. The discussion about Ball and the nature of evil is continuing to bring in great, thoughtful comments. I also got a voicemail from Patricia about last week's story, Just Coffee. This episode is already running long, though, so I'm going to save the feedback for next week's episode. If you'd like to sound off about the show, send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License, so don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.